as you are able, would you please rise with us as we begin our worship service this morning? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is far more excellent than theirs. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Let us sing.
may be seated. Our God is great. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand this morning. There are lots of, uh, there are lots of self-help booksellers. I'll, I'll say it that way. There are lots of self-help booksellers out there, authors who want to make a buck, who have all manner of different ideas and philosophies that they want to promote. But there is nothing that surpasses the greatness and the goodness of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 2 makes this statement. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And he follows that with this statement. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition. In this world, we will have many peddlers of many self-help theories. But take heart. Christ has overcome the New York Times bestseller list, and he proclaims himself as the one that can satisfy our souls. Let's pray and ask him to be with us this morning. Father, we just say thank you for sending your son to open our eyes to the greatest pleasures, the greatest delights that we could ever know, those that are found in fellowship with you. Father, this morning as your people gather together, there are many, many concerns and many, many distractions that weigh upon us. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would capture our focus, that you would redirect our gaze, that we would see you and behold you this morning and sing together how great you are, Father. We pray this morning for those who come to worship you, that they would sense your presence and your nearness, and that they would be blessed as you speak to their hearts through your word by your spirit. We worship you this morning, and our prayer is that as we worship you in Christ, it would be a sweet sound in your ear. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome to this gathering of First Baptist Church. I'm going to... I'm gonna, do something a little unusual. We're at 50 here in the main sanctuary, so we can't let anyone else in here. But uh, the engaged lovers have been separated. So I'm going to go ahead and allow this extra fellow to come on in. For those of you that don't remember, Russ and Rachel are engaged to be wed December 9th or 19th? 19th. Give them a hand. So we're, we're maybe I shouldn't say this out loud. We are allowing one extra person in the sanctuary this morning. I will not comment on the number of individuals who are here in the sanctuary. We're glad that you're here. And uh, again, as you're making your way in this morning, we, the first 50 come into the main sanctuary, and unfortunately, we have to start redirecting people over to the fireside room at that point. And so uh, we just want to make you aware we have, we have the option to have multiple gatherings within our church facilities as long as we keep it down to 50. So we always have the uh, space up in the, um, in the balcony there. And of course, we are streaming into the overflow room. And the, for those of you who are first-time guests this morning, uh, I see several of you in the balcony and, and a few more of you down here in the sanctuary. In order to have multiple gatherings of 50 within our building, we have to allow for separate washroom facilities for each distinct gathering. So the kids downstairs have their own washroom. And for those of you here in the sanctuary and in the balcony, it's a roundabout process for you to get where you need to go. But essentially, you're going all the way down to the ground floor to use the washroom downstairs. And you'll just go down the stairs and, and you'll take a hard left, turn a hard left, a full 180 degrees, and uh, the washrooms will be right there in front of you. For those of you who are in the fireside room, your washroom is going to be right through that back door into what was formerly 
the nursery, and you'll find that there is a pathway blocked off uh, with, uh, with dividers that keeps you separate from the nursery, and you can access the, the washroom that is in the nursery. We want to say a special welcome to all those of you who are tuning in online as well as through the church website, as well as those of you who are tuning in through the radio. We forgot to turn the radio broadcaster on last week. I apologize. We had a, a new individual that I hadn't sufficiently trained. I'll tell I'm this is my responsibility. I forgot to tell him about that, uh, that last little detail. And so for Elle and Rose and several others of you over at the Ponderosa Lodge, we love you. We welcome you. We, are, we apologize that we forgot to turn the radio on last week, and, and we welcome you this morning to this worship service. I want to say howdy to a few guests. We're joined this morning, first-time guest, Alfred from McClure. Would you give Alfred a warm hand this morning? He said, you say howdy too? Al. Al. I said Alfred. I apologize. I got to stop that. This is Brother Al, okay? So we're glad that Al is here this morning. And uh, we also just want to welcome back uh, our friends from last year. Uh, we want to welcome back Christine, Garrett and Christine, and their baby, whose name I forget at this point, but uh, they're on the back row there. Would you give them a warm welcome this morning? We're glad you guys are here. And then this morning, we're also joined by Tara's parents, Ken and Esther. Would you give Ken and Esther a warm welcome this morning? We are, we are so glad you're here. And I, I, I'm just looking around, and I see a few other folks up in the balcony. I didn't grab your name before the start of this worship service, but for those unnamed individuals in the balcony, we love you. And would you show them your love for them and give them a warm hand as well? We are glad that you guys are here. A couple of announcements just to make you aware of. All of our ministries are slowly but surely kicking off. Our fall season, our fall ministry season is beginning. And so you, we, we're not handing out bulletins because of all that's involved with that. But uh, I just encourage you, if you have a scrap piece of paper and a pen, you'll want to make note of a couple of these things. First off, men's ministry. Um, all the men in the house want to make you aware that on Saturday, September the 26th, that's not uh, this Saturday, but the following Saturday, we're going to be going paintballing. So men, let's go paintballing. The fee, if you're wondering, is $40. And uh, we're going to be meeting here at the church at 930 and then heading up to uh, the Harper Mountain Paintball Park. If you're interested in going, would you please RSVP and let Keith Mill know that you are interested in going paintballing. I have a funny story about paintballing. Uh, the last time I went paintballing, I had just been discharged from the United States Marine Corps. And uh, I was uh, taking my church's youth group paintballing. And in the Marines, you just have to understand there's a mentality there, okay? Uh, and, and in training for combat, you, there's a certain process you're trained to go through. If you get wounded, you look to see who's shooting at you, and you take them out before you go to seek medical attention. And so we played paintball, and I knew it was a game, but somehow in the midst of the game... I sort of went back to being like a Marine, I guess. And, and I remember sitting there, and I got hit in the shoulder, and I, in the back of my brain, I was like, oh, I've been hit. And rather than sit, you know, putting my hand up in there and saying, I'm hit and running off the field, I turned, and I saw who it was that was shooting me, and I double-tapped him to the face. <laughs> and of course, he was like, what are you doing? And he kept moving, and so I double-tapped him again, because that's what you do. You keep shooting until the enemy is down. You neutralize the threat. And at this point, everybody was in an uproar and was like, you're a cheater, pastor. You're the worst paintballer in the world. 
And so I haven't, I haven't gone paintballing since. So I might go. I might go. Uh, and if I, if I play dirty, I love you. That's how I was trained. So you can't hold me responsible. Um, but no, seriously, go paintballing. It's going to be a lot of fun September the 26th. Uh, youth group. I want to make this announcement. Youth group. We are resuming youth group meetings. We are going to have our first youth group. It's going to be everybody from grade 5 to grade 12. And we are getting together on Friday. Our first meeting this year is going to be Friday, September the 25th. And we're going to be having laser tag and pizza. And I'll be there for that. So I've got laser tag, and then I've got the very next day, I've got paintball. So don't worry, kids. No, you should be afraid of me, really. You should. Nobody shoot me, because I'll come after you. No, no, it's okay. Come and have fun. Uh, Make a note of that. The Wednesday night fellowship, I have some unfortunate news to tell you. Uh, As as you've probably been aware following the news, Dr. Bonnie Henry and uh, health minister... Um, MLA Dix, Adrian Dix, he, they, they announced this last week that uh, they, as a result of the uptick in new cases of COVID-19 in the province, uh, we've gone from averaging in July, it was like 20 cases a day, now we're averaging like 110 to 120 cases a day. And as they've engaged in contact tracing, they have discovered that these cases are linked to uh, mostly bars and, and nightclubs, which we don't do any of that kind of thing here by any means, but they've also noticed that there's a link to banquet halls, that is facilities that host weddings and, and banquets and, and the, that sort of thing. And so they have issued a health order this past week in which they are uh, closing down banqueting halls. And prior to the banqueting hall being closed down, they were limited to no, gatherings of no larger than 50 as well. So we look closely at that government uh, regulation And unfortunately, we determined that when we do our Wednesday evening fellowship dinners, even with the food safe and all of the preparations we're making to serve that meal in a safe manner, we unfortunately fit the exact definition of a banquet hall for our Wednesday evening gatherings. And so unfortunately, we'll not be able to do, until further further notice, we'll not be able to do the Wednesday evening food aspect of of our Wednesday evening fellowships, but we will still continue to meet. And we will have a devotion, which will be brought by uh, Tyler Walkton. And we'll also have a time of prayer together in which we share prayer requests. And uh, we will be meeting here in the sanctuary and streaming that fellowship live to those of you who are unable to make it. It'll be live on YouTube, on the church website, as well as on our Facebook page. And that will begin on September the 30th. So it's the last Wednesday of September. You're more than welcome to join us here. Again, we're limited to a group of no larger than 50. And um, there will be coffee afterwards. So coffee and perhaps perhaps a dessert or something like that. So probably not the dessert, actually. I'm not thinking about it. No, probably just going to be the coffee. But uh, anyway, we just want to make you aware of that. And for those of you who've been attending here for six, seven months now, you, you like it. You, you, this is your church home. You're ready to settle down and put down roots. Um, we have a new members class taking place on September 20th and 27th. It's going to be at 1 o'clock following the morning worship service. And so we want you to mark that date on your calendar. Uh, this is a requirement to anyone who is interested in becoming a member and, uh, and participating in the, in the business of the church. And so please note that on your calendars. And we look forward to getting to know you and having the opportunity for you to get to know us a little bit better as well. Again, men's Bible study is happening on Tuesday evenings at 8 o'clock at uh, Andrew Buis's house. 
And one other thing that I want to make you aware of, for those of you on the 55-plus planning committee, we do have a meeting tomorrow at 1045, and that will be downstairs. So if you're on the 55-plus planning committee, that will be tomorrow at 1045. Now, many of you have had the chance to get to know uh, the Konyes. Everest and, and Rosalind Konye and their children uh, shared with us that uh, he has accepted a position uh, working down in Qualicum Beach, and they are in the process of moving. And we have prayed with them and joined with them in loving them and, and serving them as they've been striving to get their immigration paperwork uh, in order before the government that they might stay here long term. We've talked about the persecution that they face if they're deported and sent back to Nigeria. And, and as, as we've been working and praying with them, we rejoice that they have this position at, down in Qualicum Beach. But as they are moving, there are some uh, expenses that they have incurred. Now, we encourage you to give your regular offering. There's boxes at the back of the sanctuary in the fireside room. And of course, for those of you watching online, there's an online tab for you to give. But this morning, we're going to be taking up a love offering for those of you who would like to support the costs of them moving down to Qualicum Beach. Um, and so John Dykstra is going to be coming around here in just a few minutes to take up that love offering. And uh, as we give that love offering, a few directions. Don't touch John. <laughs> Again, just for COVID-19 safety protocols, just take your, your offering, whatever it might be, and just try to delicately put it into the plate without touching him. Uh, and so he's going to be coming around here in just a few minutes to do that. But before we take up that offering, I have one additional announcement I would like to make. You guys know and love Ryan and Kyla Blyenberg, right? Yes. Now, and I don't even know, is, is Kyla here this morning? She's homesick. She's homesick. She's downstairs. No. Listen, this is her mom. She would know. Let's listen to Miss Judy. She says she's homesick. Um, and by the way, welcome back, Judy. From Yeah, give her a hand. <laughs> she walked in this morning with a power drill, and I was like, "Woo, you look ready for business, but I'm going to give you a hug anyway. So that's what you bring to church, your Bible in one hand, your power drill in the other. Um, but, and, and so back to, the, back to the Kyla. You might be wondering, why is she homesick? It's not COVID-19. It's another kind of morning sickness. And so we... Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so we are excited to announce to you this morning that uh, Ryan and Kyla are expecting child number four sometime in the month of May. So that's a wonderful blessing. Give them a hand. And you can pray for me as well. I uh, have, you know, they recently adopted a little one, and so in the space of 10 months, they will have gone from being a two-child family to a four-child family, and uh, they picked up a three-year-old and an, a newborn infant along the way, and so that's a lot of transition for that family, and so um, I would greatly appreciate your prayers for them, and uh, and. You know, if you could just write them a note letting them know that you're thinking of them and, and that you're with them in prayers, uh, I know that they would really appreciate that. So I uh, just want to make you aware of that. Now, without any further ado, uh, at this time, I'd like for us to just pray for the offering and, and remember the, uh, the Konyes. If you feel led by God, we're going to be handing 
John is going to be walking around here in just a few minutes for the Konye offering. So let's go before the Lord in prayer and give thanks. Lord in heaven, we just say thank you. We know, Lord, that we have been so richly blessed. We go down the list of, of all these announcements and all of these incredible opportunities that we have to fellowship together and to worship you, Lord, and to, to draw closer to you, to know more of you. And we know, Lord, all of this is by grace. You give us the privilege of adoption, the blessing of being called sons and daughters of the Most High. Lord, we say thank you for this. We know, Lord, that we are able to have this relationship with you only because you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. Our prayer this morning, Lord, is that we would see the greatness of that grace, the costliness of it, and that it would warm our hearts and draw us in affection and relationship closer to you. Father, as we worship you this morning, we know that we can trust you with everything. All that we have comes from your hand, and so we give back, Lord, not because we have to, not because you need us to, but because we, we want to, Lord. We recognize that all that we have comes from you, and you provide for our every need, and so out of trust in you, we give back. We pray, Lord, that you just take this offering that we give whether we're giving to the tithes and the offerings of the church for the continued proclamation of your word here, or whether we're giving to support our brothers, our brother and sister, the Konyes, as they move to Qualicum Beach. We pray in all these things that your name would be exalted and that this world would know that there is a God who loves, who saves, and who blesses. We pray, Lord, that the name of Jesus would be exalted, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. sorts this morning. Um, 
At this time, if you're here and you have an infant and you want to take that infant to the nursery, you're more than welcome to do so at this time. Just want to make you aware of that. And uh, as we continue in worship this morning, I'd like to invite uh, Dustin Savage to come and to read the scriptures to us this morning. As Dustin comes, I'd like to ask you, would you please stand as you are able in honor of the reading of God's word? Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 through 21. These are the words of God. Now while Paul was now while Paul was visit, or was waiting for them at Athens his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there some of the epicurean and stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said what does this babbler wish to say others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are preaching and presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and their foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. May you remain standing as we continue to sing this morning.
Church, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings that you have poured down on us from heaven, from very life itself to the grace that is found through Jesus Christ, to your wonderful heaven-breathed word. As we listen to it this morning and as you speak through our pastor, we pray that the, the heavenly word would impart itself into us, that those seeds would plant themselves deep in our soil, and may, may we hear, Lord, so that this, this harvest is a 30, 60, 100-fold reaping. I pray for the pastor this morning that he would listen to your spirit and listen to your word and that everything would be direct from your throne. <laughs> In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We're continuing to work our way through the book of Acts, through the text. And um, we find ourselves in Athens this morning. We find ourselves in Athens. And I spent quite a bit of time last week on the church in Berea, the Bereans, because of the description that Luke gives to the Bereans in the sense that he calls them noble-minded. And the reason why they are noble-minded is because they received what Paul was preaching, not with an uncritical attitude, but, but they looked at the scriptures to verify that what Paul was preaching was true. I believe that Luke sets that up as a contrast to what we're going to find in Athens. He makes his way from Berea further down the peninsula to Athens. And as we jump in this morning, I want to remind you of an old, old saying, Timeo danaas et dona ferentes. You've probably never heard that before, but... In English, translated, fear the Greeks, even when they bring gifts. And that is essentially what I want you to hold in your mind this morning. It's obviously a reference to the Trojan horse. You'll recall that famous battle of Troy. And the Greeks left a horse there and said, you know what, we're done. We're taking off. We'll leave you alone now. And the, the Trojans, the, they came out and they brought that horse into their city and, of course, it was all a trick. This so-called gift turned out to be the seed of their destruction. Um, and that, that is essentially where that saying comes from. And that's what I want you to hold in your, morning, in, your, in your heart and in your mind this morning. The ancient Greeks were not the first civilization in the West, but they made such an immense contribution to art and architecture, uh, science, politics, warfare, education, poetry, history, and, of course, philosophy, that many discussions of these subjects today, which is like all of the really important discussions, basically, many of the discussions of those subjects today uh, begin with a review of what the Greek philosophers, what the Greek scholars, uh, what they thought about those things. Until the 20th century, of course, and then we see the, uh, the influx of Eastern religion. But uh, when we look at our society today, it is in large part shaped by two influences. It is shaped by the Greeks, and it is shaped, obviously, by Christianity. As we trace back the, the history of Christian thought, we go all the way back to the first century, and one of the things that we find is from the very beginning... Uh, of the church, the church fathers, the early church fathers, tried to synthesize biblical thought with Greek thought, with 
Platonic philosophy. They tried to put these two things together. I think perhaps the earliest Christian writer to attempt this, and I think he attempted it rather unsuccessfully, was Justin Martyr. And he, uh, considering the ideas that Plato had for his, uh, his demiurge, he considered that uh, this demiurge, which for Plato was a, a, a godlike figure, um, he, he considered that Plato perhaps got this idea for his godlike figure from the writings of Moses and attempted to show how Moses and the demiurge of Plato were, the, the god of Moses and the demiurge of Plato were really the same thing. I think it was a failed experiment, but it hasn't stopped scholars from trying, and even to this very day, we have a tendency to look at Greek thought and to see how that Greek thought can line up with perhaps biblical teaching. Now, although I greatly admire the brilliance of the Greek thinkers, you need to know that it is a serious mistake to adopt their worldviews. And most of us would say, of course not, but it is equally a serious mistake to spend too much time trying to harmonize or synthesize the Greek worldview with that of the scriptures. The Greeks did explore many of the same themes as the biblical writers. They looked at the question of God and metaphysics, of course, the nature of reality, the origin of our world, human nature, wisdom, all of that kind of thing. And, of course, we can look at what man is capable of, what types of brilliance he can attain when he is thinking on his own by looking at the Greeks. Of course, we have a more certain word from the Lord. And he says in his word that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. And so as, we'll sh- as we shall see today, looking at the Apostle Paul, he encountered some Greek philosophers in the Areopagus, in Athens. And what we find is that he rejected their philosophy, as he says in Colossians chapter 2, as nothing more than a trap. Or, as he puts it there in Colossians 2, empty deception, all right? And we're going to look at that today. I want you to turn with me now in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Uh, we'll, be, we'll pick it up in, in verse 16. The text tells us, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he's left Berea, he's left his traveling companions behind, he's made his way to Athens, and he's waiting there. He's walking the city, and it says his spirit was provoked within him. He was moved. He was uh, troubled by what he saw. As he was considering the city, he saw that it was full of idols. Notice that word, idols, okay? And he, it goes on, the text goes on. He, as, as was his custom, he went into the synagogues, and he began to reason and argue with the Jews as well as any devout persons. And, and it makes this other comment. He did it there in the marketplace, Apparently, it was quite feasible. This is something a little bit different. We haven't seen him going to marketplaces and doing a lot of marketplace preaching in these other cities. He always goes to the synagogue, and the text always tells us that in the synagogue, he begins preaching. But he does something a little different here. Of course, he starts in the synagogues, but he's also preaching now in the marketplaces. And Luke gives us an indication as to why that is. If you look at verse, uh, if you look down at the very last verse, verse 21, it says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners, that is the people who traveled there to study Greek thought and philosophy, he says all of these guys who lived there would spend their time 
in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And, and perhaps we can relate to this. Um, if, if you are like me, you, uh, you've been trapped in your home, perhaps, and you've been quarantined uh, for the last several months. And, and I'm just curious here, how many of you, by show of hands, are just waiting for something new to come out on Netflix because you've watched all the good Netflix shows already? Okay, that's good. Good moment of truth there. Um, and the reality is that this is what the Athenians were doing. They were always looking for something new. They were waiting for that next new topic of discussion, that next new uh, presentation of some original thought. And Paul is there in Athens, and he's preaching, and they encounter him in the marketplace. You might think, okay, the grocery store isn't the best place to go and have a religious conversation, but again, this is the city that is home to so much architecture, thought, philosophy. Of course, these are guys that are thinkers, and of course, in the marketplace, they're going to be talking about these things, and so the text tells us that Paul had opportunity not only in the synagogues, but also in the regular marketplace to begin having some of these conversations around what God is like, right? The nature of reality. And the text takes us a little bit further. It says in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And it was these two competing schools of philosophy, the Epicureans and the Stoics, who wanted to dialogue further with the Apostle Paul. They approach him, okay, they converse with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? You can't help but hear the derision and the scorn. Oh, okay, so this guy thinks he's got a thing he can teach us? Well, let's, let's see. But others are interested. It goes on to say, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. They, they're, they're discussing amongst themselves what kind of a philosopher, what kind of a man could this be? And, and he's clearly preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they start to draw some conclusions. And all this leads them to extending an invitation to him to meet with them at their favorite place of debate and discussion, the Areopagus. And so verse 19 says, they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Now, the text tells us that Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. But to really understand what Paul is driving at in terms of the gospel for the Athenians, we need to understand the audience more closely. We need to understand what their beliefs are that are listening to him. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take just a little bit of time and introduce you to the Epicurean and Stoic schools of thought. The Epicureans were essentially an individual, a type of philosopher that believed that the, the best life you could possibly have was a life of pleasure. Now, they were working with a limited understanding of the world about 500 years before Paul shows up. There is a, a scholar that precedes Paul, an individual by the name of Thales. And Thales had proposed, as he looked at the world around him, that there had to be some unifying truth to the world. There had to be something that brought all of these diverse experiences together. And as he looked at the various elements in the world, he came to the realization that what must be at the center of it all was water. 
water. He looked at the oceans, and he looked at the rivers and the lakes, and he concluded that water was everywhere. And he didn't know this at the time, but yes, in fact, water makes up the majority of our planet. And furthermore, as he considered the human body, the human being, he recognized that if you cut a man open, he would bleed, and he considered that that was nothing more than just red-colored water that was coming out of him. And as Thales was forming his theories of the universe, he decided that water must, in fact, be the thing which brings everything together. Now, a couple of other guys rose up and said, but wait a second, Thales, you know, water might account for me and you, and it might account for this planet. It might be at the heart of everything that's going on. But there's one thing that water doesn't account for, and that's motion. What exactly makes us move? And so Thales sought to refine his theory, and he looked a little bit more closely at his hypothesis of water, and he realized that, in fact, water does move. It moves on its own. Now, he had no understanding of the moon or the gravitational pull of the earth and the moon, but when he looked at the ocean, he saw that the water would move in waves and that ships would be moved by the waves of water. And so when he looked at the rivers, he saw that the rivers were moving, and he saw that the waves in the ocean were moving, and he said, no, actually, my theory is still correct. Water is all, all is water. In effect, what Thales was suggesting was that in all of the different experiences of life, he had come to his unifying principle, and his unifying principle was water. And we had lots of other scholars that followed after Thales We had Plato, and we had Aristotle, and we had Epicurus, and we had Marcus Aurelius, and we had numerous other scholars, and they've continued to hammer at this theory of a unified universe, a singular thing which accounts for all things. And if you take the time to read Plato or Aristotle, you'll find that in their writings, they come right up to the threshold of the door beyond which you can only help but conclude there must be a God. And yet they refused to go through that door. What I have found in my own life in terms of studying philosophy is that philosophers really like asking questions, but they really hate it when you give them answers. The philosophers pride themselves on their intellect, and they believe that through reason and reason alone, they can arrive at an understanding of all things. And of course, as they work and question and as they pick apart reality, as they begin to get back to fundamental basic truths, They begin to realize there's a God, but they say, no, 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 I'm not going to say that there's a God. They always, for some reason, stop short. Many of you might know this about me. I I wasn't always a Bible student. I started off actually as a philosophy major at the University of Texas A&M, and I spent two years as a philosophy major before I transferred to Dallas Baptist University to get a degree in Bible, and the reason for that was because I actually wanted to learn something. (laughs) I found in my philosophy classes that the maxim is true. There are some amazing thoughts that are developed. There are some incredible arguments that are formed and fashioned. But as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, they all fall short. They all turn out to be nothing more than a 
trap, or as he says in Colossians 2, empty deception, because time and again, when they come to this threshold that there must be a God, they say, I cannot possibly, using only my mind, reason to the existence of a God. I can't justify his existence. I can't prove his existence because my mind, there's no argument beyond that. And yet, all the rest of humanity, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, all of humanity knows that there is a God. We know it from the things that exist. By looking at the universe around us, we know that there is a God. We are aware of his power and his greatness. We understand from the world around us, as the psalmist says in Psalm 19, there isn't day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. And everyone looking at this world, looking at this universe, knows that there is a God. And yet the philosopher cannot come up with an airtight, beyond dispute argument based on his own reasoning, and therefore, even though the answer seems obvious and is in fact obvious, they won't have it. They won't have it. And this is what Paul is contending with. We have two schools of thought here. We have the Epicureans, and we also have the Stoics. And after some 500 years of Greek argument and discussion from Plato and Aristotle and all of these different guys, we've come to this this day here in the first century AD to Athens, and philosophy has essentially embittered itself. It's kind of reached this point of skepticism and cynicism where they're like, well, we aren't really able to come up with a unifying theory of the universe. Thales gave it a good try, and there have been a lot of other guys since Thales, but we really just want to concern ourselves now with more practical questions. In other words, how do we live a good life? That's really what we're interested in. We recognize that we're all going to die. We've only got a certain amount of time on this earth. And so we want to take the time that we have and we want to live it to the fullest. We want to live a good life. But of course, that begs certain questions. What is the good life and how do we live it? This is a question that I actually posed to my Old Testament students this last week as we began looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, in which Solomon says, vanity of vanity, everything's vanity. And for those of you who are in Old Testament, you might have some more information presented to you this morning in the sermon that will help you with your writing assignment, which is due Tuesday morning at 8.30, just so you're aware. (laughs) So, what is the good life? The Epicureans and the Stoics had come to this position in which they determined that the world, the universe in which we exist, there's no personal God at the heart of it, but really what we see is nothing more than materialistic matter in motion. They, They didn't account for anything beyond what they could see, and therefore they reckoned that life was grasped by fate, that what is going to happen is going to happen. There is no escaping it, And so then the question is, since we are all going to die, since that is our fate, since there is no way to escape that fate, how then shall we live the good life? The Epicureans said, basically, what we need to do is we need to pursue pleasure. We need happiness, and we need to avoid pain, and we need to be as happy as we possibly can. The original Epicureans, the original Epicurus, the founder of this particular school of thought, as he pursued pleasure and as he avoided pain, he began to become aware of some of the difficulties and the struggles with that pursuit. 
And he basically said, what we need to do is do everything in moderation. But essentially, let's go after as having much fun as we possibly can. We have modern-day Epicureans among us. They're all around us. You'll know an Epicurean when you meet someone who lives for the weekend and is incredibly bummed when Sunday night rolls around and Monday morning they have to go back to work. They seem to start off Monday just saying, man, I want to get to that Friday night party or I want to get out to the camping spot this coming Friday evening and I'm just here working in order to get a living that I can go and have fun on the weekend. That is an Epicurean. And we are surrounded by Epicureans. And I can tell you this for a certainty just by giving you a few painful statistics. The average Canadian will spend every year, on average, $3,273 on vacation. $3,273. It makes the, the amount of money that the average Canadian will spend every year on vacation is the third largest expense they'll, they'll make aside from their mortgage or their vehicle payment. They will spend that much money on vacation. You say, well, Pastor Josh, what's so wrong with going on vacation? Nothing. Nothing is wrong with taking a season of rest. Nothing is wrong with getting away from work. We find it in the scriptures that we have to rest. There's nothing wrong inherently with going on vacation, but here's the catch. The average Canadian, for every dollar that they earn, they spend $1.20. Do the math. There's nothing wrong with going on vacation, but when you're going into debt to go on vacation, there's probably a heart condition that is there. We might say that if you're sacrificing tremendous amounts of credit and racking up these enormous interest payments in order to go on vacation, that there's probably an idol. But we can see this in other statistics as well. Did you know that aside from Christmas, Halloween, Halloween is the most expensive holiday in the year? Do you want to know how much the average Canadian spends on Halloween? Well, I'll tell you. Last year, Canadians spent total, all across the country, a little over a billion dollars on Halloween. A billion. I said that with a B. A billion dollars. They spent it on costumes. They spent it on candy. And they spent it on de decorations. The average Canadian per adult will spend $250 on Halloween per adult, which means per household, per two adults, you're looking at around $500. That's insane to me because you're essentially playing pretend for one night and you're going to spend $500 on that. $100 to $175 is spent on costumes per adult, $100 to $150 on decorations and $50 to $100 on candy. We need a break, so we're going to go blow 100 bucks on chocolate. I say that, and I feel convicted in that moment because I spend money on chocolate. I like chocolate. Christmas follows closely after Halloween. The average Canadian household will spend around $750 per adult on Christmas for a combined $1,500 per two-adult household. 
Well, we seem to be Epicureans. And as we chase after pleasure, as we go after these various pursuits, undoubtedly we have stumbled upon what philosophers have called the Epicurean paradox. Life is about the pursuit of pleasure. If you pursue pleasure and you can attain it, you will soon become bored with it and must seek some greater pleasure. See, the Stoics came along and looked at the Epicureans and said, you guys are dumb. Here's your problem. The Epicureans needed it pointed out to them. If you're pursuing pleasure, the greater the pleasure you aim at, the more likely it is that you will fail. Which means that as you pursue greater and greater and greater pleasures, the more likely it is that you will actually encounter frustration and despair, if not destruction. In a sense, what the Stoics are saying is, hey, if you're swiping your credit card and you're racking up 120 to every $1 that you earn, sooner or later, the party is going to end and you're going to hit hard, cold reality and owe a lot of money in the process. Sooner or later, the greater the pleasure you pursue, you will fail. And then, guess what? You have been pursuing pleasure, and the meaning of life is to pursue pleasure and to avoid pain. But the greater the pleasure you've pursued, the more likely it is you encounter a greater pain. So the pursuit of pleasure could also be the pursuit of pain. Who wants that? So the Epicurean said, fine, what's your solution to this dilemma? And the Stoics said, the solution is to pursue not pleasure, but to pursue the good. And as Christians, we look at that and we say, wow, that sounds pretty wise. Let's pursue what is good. But now we've entered into a different conversation. What is good? How do we define what is good? The Stoics had a few ideas on this. They agreed with the Epicureans that this world was materialistic only. They also agreed that we were bound in this horrible fate in which we were all going to die and there was no escaping it. And so the question in terms of how to live the good life was simply this. Let's live the good life by pursuing what is good. The best way to understand this in Stoic ethics is through this question of what is good. All parties agree that the possession of what is genuinely good is what secures a person's happiness, but where we disagree is what constitutes a genuine goodness. Let me put it to you this way. How many of you think you could live the good life if you had $10 million? Okay, let's be honest. I'm sure you don't want to raise your hand, but in your heart you're raising your hand right now, okay? That's okay. I am too. I could live the good life for $10 million. You give me $10 million, I'll be set. I'll never work another day again. But what do I do with that $10 million? Here's the question. Is spending $10 million on myself to live good? Now, I would say yes, but many of you might say no. You might say no, what you need to do, Pastor Josh, to live the good life with your $10 million is to give it to me. That's the good life. 
you laugh, but nevertheless, this is the actual stoic discussion. This is their debate. If I take $10 million, what in the world would I spend it on? What could use $10 million? Let's say, for some strange reason, I take $10 million, which might be a good in and of itself, but I use it to accomplish something which I think might be good, but turns out to be really, really bad. For example, let's say I take that $10 million and then I develop a, an experimental vaccine against, say, cancer. That would be good. But what if that vaccine turns out to be a disaster in its own right and everyone who injects it turns into mindless, flesh-eating zombies? That would be bad, okay? So then the Stoics' debate is, in order to know what is truly good, we have to be able to anticipate every possible outcome of whatever good it is that we attain and they began to recognize that they couldn't see every possible outcome, and they began to get frustrated. And the Epicureans turned and laughed at the Stoics and said, ha, 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 we enjoy our lives. We're just running around drinking and having parties and having a good time, and you guys are sitting here debating what constitutes good. We aim for pleasure. We might fail, but at least we are aiming at something. You guys don't even know what you're aiming at. So the Stoics' response to that was, you know what we need to do? We need to abandon the pursuit of material goods, and we need to focus on developing the inner good, character traits such as virtue and honesty and integrity and all this sort of thing. And along comes Marcus Aurelius, one of the, one of the Roman Caesars, perhaps one of the most famous Stoic philosophers of all time. He writes a book probably popularly known to all of you as the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, but its original title was Towards Himself. And in this book, Marcus Aurelius, sets up, Marcus Aurelius who happens to be Caesar, happens to be uh, one of the wealthiest men in the world, and this is a, a side truth regarding Stoics. It's a lot easier to be a Stoic when you have a lot of money. Just going just gonna to say that. Um, he begins this process of journaling, and trying to work on himself to develop these inner virtues. And what Marcus Aurelius discovered, along with many Stoics, is that if the attainment of the good is necessary for happiness, and, if, and it doesn't matter what you attain to, whether it's money or whether it's integrity or personal character, virtue of some kind, if the attainment of the good, if you can attain it, then almost immediately upon getting it, you fear losing it. You see, Marcus Aurelius would say, I want to be a just emperor. And then the Germanic horde invades and he sends off so many legions and he slaughters all these people and he's looking at the outcome of this war in which he slaughters all the Germanic peoples of the north and he recognizes perhaps that wasn't so good. And here he is setting out to be a just emperor, a wise emperor, and he finds in himself that at all of his attempts to be just, he is actually unjust. And so when he's priding himself on developing these virtues and these character traits, he realizes that as life goes on, the closer he feels he's getting to the good, the more afraid he is in the very next moment of losing the good, and we enter into the stoic paradox. If I get whatever is good, I will immediately get fear the fear of losing the good. 
And so how is it that good and fear can coexist? I essentially will be living a very anxious and nervous lifestyle. In response to all of this, Paul says, Luke says regarding Paul, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Despite their best efforts to attain to the good, they were doing it in their own image. They were not pursuing God. And Paul begins to preach to them. As it says there in, uh, in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And then it tells us in verse 18, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You see, pondering the question about what is good is not a bad question to ponder. The problem is when you try to figure it out for yourself, you're going to hopelessly run yourself around in a circle. But Jesus was preached by Paul. I think what we might want to do is consider what is pleasure, what is good from the perspective of God? Now, there's nothing wrong with asking the question. We ask it to each other all the time. You meet someone for the first time, you say, hi, my name is Josh, and they introduce themselves. You say, what do you do for a living? They tell you what they do. You kind of talk, you go back and forth, and eventually, sooner or later, you say, so what, what do you like to do for fun? We've all asked that question. And if we're thinking about it, what a person likes to do for fun is a reflection on that person to some extent, isn't it? Well, for example, if you met someone who told you honestly, well, I like to kill little kittens for fun, you'd be quite disturbed. But if you met someone who says, well, for fun, I like to go down and serve at the soup kitchen, and I like to go and worship in the church, you'd probably admire that individual. Why is it we despise the guy that kills the kittens but admire the guy that volunteers his time in the soup kitchen? It's because there is some value, there is some worth in a person that we understand from looking at what he takes pleasure in. The Puritan scholar Henry Scougal once made this statement in a little book that he wrote called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. He wrote this in 1677. He wrote, the soul is measured by its flights, some low and others high. The heart is known by its delights, and pleasures never lie. He follows that with this statement, the worth and the excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love, by that in which it takes pleasure. So God is spirit. Let's put Henry Skugel's thesis to the test. What does God take pleasure in? You see, these Stoics and these Epicureans, they're running around, they're looking for something that will make them happy. And by their best efforts, they've come up with either gorging themselves and partying or by being Stoic, by being, you know, middle of the keel kind of thing and just working on your inner self. And at the end of the day, both are depressed. Both are frustrated. Both live with anxiety as a result of their efforts. And Paul comes along and he says, what does God find pleasure in? 
What does he delight in? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, don't flip there, but just listen. Paul, writing to Timothy, touches on the gospel, and he calls it the gospel, the good news of the glory of the happy God. God is happy. God has found pleasure. God delights in something. And the gospel is that when we meet God, we're not meeting a God who is sour and dour. That's not good news. Who wants to spend an eternity with a God who isn't all that happy? You know, who, who among us wants to go and spend a lot of time with someone who's miserable and constantly complaining? Surely you don't want to do that. Well, who would want to spend an eternity with a God who is that way? But if that's not God, then what is God? Paul tells us God is happy. He is joyful. What does God take joy in? What does he take delight in? And the answer is Jesus. God takes joy and pleasure in Jesus. Every time God, the Father, introduces his son anywhere in the Gospels, You'll notice he'll say something along the lines of, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Another way of saying it, this is my son in whom I delight. Or you could say, this is my son in whom I take a great deal of pleasure. God rejoices over the son. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, the Bible reveals this to us while showing us the face of Jesus shining like the sun. In Matthew 17, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up onto a high mountain, and when they are all alone, something utterly astonishing happens. God pulls back the curtain on the incarnation of Christ, and he lets these guys see the kingly glory of the Son of God shine through. It says, quote, his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. Of course, the text tells us that Peter and James and John are totally stunned. But then Peter, writing near the end of his life, in Second Peter, makes the statement that he had seen the majestic glory on the holy mountains, and that he had heard a voice from heaven, and echoing what he heard in Matthew chapter 17, Peter writes, I heard the voice from heaven, the voice of God himself saying to me, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Paul makes the statement in, Galatians, in Colossians 2, Philosophy is a trap. It's nothing but empty deception. What does he say right before he makes that statement? He says, walk with Christ just like you've already been taught. Peter is echoing this. Jesus was amazing. The God the Father in heaven said, this is my son whom I take pleasure in. Listen to him. And of course, as we're reflecting on this, this transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain, the text tells us that he was shining as brightly as the sun. How many of you have ever tried to stare at the sun when it comes up in the morning? You know, as it rises behind the mountains, when it first begins to peak up, you might be able to see it. But as it gets a little bit higher in the sky, very quickly, within a short period of time, within about five minutes or less, it's so bright you actually can't look at it. You have to look away. Jesus becomes bright like that on the mountains. So then the question is, 
You know, we're called to behold the Son. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that as we all behold Jesus Christ with an unveiled face, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Okay, but Jesus is here shown to us as shining as bright as the sun. How do we actually behold Jesus? Well, the only person that can look at the bright shining sun is God the Father. God can look at the shining sun in full brilliance. When, de- when God declares openly that he delights in his son, he is giving us a visual demonstration of the son's unimaginable glory. Now, of course, Jesus, his face is shining like the sun. And of, when I was thinking of this particular passage, I was reminded of Revelation chapter 1, where the apostle John encounters Jesus while he's on the island of Patmos when he's in exile and captivity. And uh, he sees Jesus, and he makes the description of him. He says, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So when we consider that Jesus shines brightly, we have to be reminded of the fact that there's only one who sees him in all his brilliance, and that is God the Father. Are you tracking with me? God the Father sees the beauty in its totality, the beauty of Jesus Christ. By looking from God the Father's vantage point at Christ in the scriptures, we are able to see from the Father's vantage point what it is exactly that makes him happy And we are able to be reassured when we look at Christ from the Father's vantage point that what we are seeing, we are seeing it accurately. What makes God happy? What is it he is looking at that makes him happy? And how exactly does it bring him pleasure? That's what Paul is proclaiming to the philosophers in Athens. They're trying to reason their own way back to something that will make them happy, and despite their best efforts, they're not able to get there. Paul says, look at Christ, and this is what Christ wants us to do. He wants us to look at him, but all of us, as we approach Christ, will need to be able to see him not as he is merely as a man, but who he is within the Trinity. That is, we have to consider God's perspective on him. We've got to look at it from the Spirit's perspective. All of this is revealed to us in the Scriptures. And Jesus, the night before he was crucified, is praying for us to have this knowledge revealed. In John chapter 17, praying to Christ, Christ praying to God the Father before he's crucified, says, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that is the name of God, in order that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus wants you to know the Father. That's why he came. He came in order to manifest his name. And on the night that he is to be betrayed and subsequently crucified, As he's praying to God, his high priestly prayer is, I've done all of this in order that the way that you love me, God the Father in heaven, that they'll love me that way as well. Did you catch that, church? 
we often talk about believing in the gospel. And as we approach this subject, quite often we say, listen, you're a sinner, you're going to die, and you're going to go to hell if you don't repent of your sins, and you owe a debt you can't pay, and the only person that can pay that debt for you is Jesus Christ, and he pays it for you on the cross, and therefore if you will trust in him, then you can be forgiven of your sins and you can go to heaven. And we say it kind of like that. One of the implications from this particular text is that it's going to require more than just a mere intellectual understanding. Conversion is more than just knowing the facts. Conversion is more than just knowing the basics of who Jesus is and what he has done. It's going to require a transformation of the heart in which we are able to behold Christ as he truly is, but more than that, to take pleasure in him. The reason why our churches are so full of nominal Christians is because what we have done is we've reduced Christianity down to nothing more than a philosophical exercise. We've reduced it down to nothing more than an intellectual exercise. And we're tempted to say that when Paul comes to preach Christ to the Athenians, he sees them engaging in these mental games, these intellectual exercises, and he just picks it up and he begins to engage in those same mental exercises. But that's not the case of it at all. They're sitting here saying, we need some unifying principle. We want to argue our own way back to some form of happiness. And his response is, Jesus, he is the one that makes you happy. Jesus not only can make you happy, but he can save you from death. In Christ, we have the resurrection. The good life, then, is not simply about getting whatever we can here and now until we die. The good life in Jesus Christ is way, way better than that. There is no death in Jesus Christ. But then the question is, if we don't die in Jesus Christ, what will we do with all of this time on our hands, all of eternity? Will we simply recite the academic back and forth, Jesus died on the cross for my sins? Or will we behold the glory and the splendor of God? Will we be moved by it because there's a day coming in which we can look at him the same way that a person might be able to look at the sun shining in full strength, but before he does that, he's got to wear a welding mask. The promise of the scriptures will be able to behold the glory of God, not needing a welding mask, actually being able to see it, to enjoy it, and to treasure it for all that it is. If that's the gospel... Thank you. If that's the gospel, why wouldn't we strive to be doing that right now? So often we come to church and it's a matter of rote. It's what we do. We go to church. So Sunday morning rolls around. We're like, well, I'm tired, but I know I got to go to church because it's what I got to do. Church. Go to church because <laughs> Jesus is awesome. Every day we come, every day we come and behold the Lord, we're going to see great and marvelous things. And treasuring those things is its own reward. You see, we don't necessarily need to come every week to get some sort of five-point plan on how to be a better parent or to somehow get... Uh, you know, a, a, a detailed analysis from the book of Proverbs on how to better budget our money. 
I look at sermon series from great preachers all across the country, and we hear three-week sermon series on this particular topic and five-week sermon series on that particular topic. And time and time again, it's how to make your life better. It's how to do this better, how to be practical and pragmatic and to do whatever it is you're trying to do, do it better. Jesus Christ is beautiful. When you go to an art gallery or a museum and you're beholding some amazing painting, are you looking at it thinking to yourself, now how is this going to make me better at driving my car? You're not looking at it that way. You're looking at it because it helps your soul to expand. When we look at Christ, there will be Sundays in which we don't learn anything of a practical or pragmatic value, what we come into touch with is our Savior. And some Sundays, that's all we need. I've said that totally wrong. That's not how it is in my manuscript. That is always all we need. Not some Sundays. We always need to see the Savior. I ask people whenever I go to different places, we get in these discussions about why they go to their church, why they like their particular church. They go there for this reason, they go there for that reason. I mean, and invariably it's like, well, they got a great children's program, you know, or I'm in, I'm in university and they got a great university ministry and they take me out and we go and we do fun things and I, there's a lot of people there that I'm friends with and I enjoy that. Do you feel loved by God because you can go to the arcade and hang out with your friends? Many of us, that's what we've reduced our faith down to. I feel like God is awesome because I go to church and I have fun. And there's nothing wrong with that. We should be pursuing pleasure. Don't misunderstand me. But then when I ask what about it makes it fun, all kinds of answers are given. But rarely is it, I just go to behold Jesus Christ in all his glory as he's presented from the word week after week. You see, the difference between nominal Christianity and true salvation is when we look at Christ, we treasure him in his own right because he is the king. It ends with him. And for so much of the rest of the world, we look at him only as a means to some other good that we want for ourselves. And that's idolatry. Paul comes to Athens and he encounters these guys. They're Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and they're asking the same basic question, how do I have happiness? How do I have pleasure in life? And he says, Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the light. But he's preaching Jesus. We then, to be faithful to Christianity, should be treasuring Christ for his own sake. If Henry Skugel is right, that the worth and the excellency of a soul is measured by the object and the object of its love, then what other object is there we could love better that would make us more excellent 
than simply loving Christ. Jeremiah chapter 2. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And number two, instead they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, doesn't that sound like Greek philosophy to you? There is only one fountain of lasting joy, and that is Jesus. He is our joy without beginning and without end. He is our joy without source and without cause. He is our joy without any help or assistance. He will always be the spring of eternal happiness that is always self-replenishing. If you look to him for some other good, you will look in vain. But if you look to him to treasure him for all that he is, you will find in him are hidden all treasures. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for your word to us. Lord, it is tempting to want to argue and to debate. It is tempting to want to try to reason our way around you, reason our way to you. Father, our prayer this morning is that we would not be like the Epicureans or the Stoics, that we would not be consumed with trying to find our own personal pleasures in this life and then pursuing those pleasures, chasing after those things. Our prayer this morning, Lord, is that you would help us to see that those things are nothing but broken cisterns, that they will not satisfy, they will not hold water forever. Lord, this morning as we look at your word, our prayer is that we would treasure you. Father, we pray that you would help us to look at your son for no other practical or pragmatic benefit than this. You are glorious. Help your people to see you this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. As you are able, would you please rise and sing with us?
be working our way through Acts chapter 17 for the next couple of weeks. And there are, are a lot of really fascinating elements in Paul's sermon there in the Areopagus on Mars Hill. But the one thing you need to understand at the heart of everything he is about to say is that Christ is our treasure. And all God's people said, amen. What a glorious day that will be 
when at last our Savior we shall get to see. Pray with me, church. Father, we just say thank you for giving us your Son, giving us, giving him to us now, and then with him giving us the promise that one day we shall see him as he is. As John writes in 1 John, we shall see him as he is because we shall be like him. Father, we don't get to see him now. It's just too difficult. He shines too bright, and our, our weak eyes are unable to grab all that he is. But we look forward to that day in which we can see him as he is. Between now, between this day and that day, Lord, our prayer is that you would help us to treasure him for his own sake, for all that he is, beyond all the benefits that he gives us. There is none greater than knowing him and having him. We pray that you would work that truth deep down into our, our hearts. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, First Baptist Church. We want to say thank you to our guests for joining with us today. We pray you have a great day. You are dismissed.